Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I once used my fierce magical powers to skin a guy in the forest, but at least I left his pants on. We are here today to talk about Villains, the 20th episode of Season 6. It aired on May 14th, 2002, and was written by Marty Noxon with, say with me now, Rebecca Rant Kirshner and Stephen S. DeKnight as story editors. This episode was directed by David Solomon, who we last saw directing in Hell's Bells. We last had a Marty Noxon script for Wrecked, and before that it was Bargaining Part 1, so we haven't seen much of her in the detail work this season, and I for one am glad to have her back. Noxon got a lot of hate and blame for Season 6, and there are a few things that I have to say about that. 1. She stepped in to give Joss Whedon an assist while he focused on Firefly, so if you like Firefly, you need to cut her some slack. She made that possible. Plus, stepping into that role to help guide a show like this takes serious courage, and from what I've seen of Marty Noxon, she has courage to spare, and I got nothing but respect for that. Two, season six, yes, has its stumbles, but there is some bold storytelling going on here, and I don't think it's intellectually justifiable to blame her for the bad stuff without giving her credit for the things that are happening in season six that have overall raised the Buffy game. Three, she has written some of the best Buffy we've gotten, including I Only Have Eyes for You, Becoming Parts One and Two, and The Wish. Four, her Twitter bio literally says, I ruined Buffy and I will ruin you too. How there is anyone in the world who doesn't love this woman, I will never understand it. I have mad love for Marty Noxon, and if you haven't watched her new show, Unreal, do it. It's good stuff, and my Noxon love and respect runs to the soul. She is taken by natural order. It is done. No, there has to be a way. It is done. No! We open this episode with Willow freaking the hell out of the Wizard of Oz, and that's just the beginning of what her power can do. This whole season, we've been talking about Willow's power as an addiction, like drugs, but now we're falling away from that a bit and looking at power for what it actually is, the ability to impose your will upon others. People who have it must have the ability to moderate themselves, or they will create greater havoc than the thing they're trying to fix. We find out who people really are when we see what they do with the power they have. Imagine if you had the power to make the world exactly how you want it. Just take a moment, really think about it. What would you change? Some things you might change for the better. Universal health care, the end of the electoral college, frozen yogurt for everyone. All good things. At least I think so. I'm a big fan of frozen yogurt. But personally, I don't know. A few months ago, given the choice, given the power, I would have made things, for me, very different from what they were. At that time, I was suffering under a huge loss, and I was praying every day for it not to be the way it was. Now I'm thanking God that I didn't have the power to change any of it. Thank God, thank God, thank God. That's me, every day, because I now see clearly things I had no idea about then. If I'd had the power back then to make things as I wanted them, I would have ended up staying in a dangerous and toxic situation, prolonging my own suffering and that of the people around me, because power without vision is damaging to everyone. And having that kind of vision, I think it's impossible. So when we talk about power, we always end up back with Uncle Ben and Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. It's this horribly cliched line that's like gum that has been chewed too long. It's lost its flavor. 
But think about it, great power without the understanding of how to wield it, how to use it, how to control it, how to not do greater damage than the damage you're trying to correct. It's not a gift, it's a curse. All right, let's get into the weeds. That's better. This episode is about vengeance, about what that really means, and the payment it demands. I don't think for a moment that Willow doesn't understand that. She just doesn't care. Even more than that, she wants it. She's looking at the price tag on vengeance and saying, sold. When Tara died in her arms, when hope of bringing her back was dashed, Willow lost the part of herself that even cared anymore. The part of her that could feel that pain was overwhelmed, and all that was left was dark vengeance. We've been talking about vengeance a lot this season, and with all of the really crunchy things about human versus demonic evil, it's easy to look past all that, but it's important. What Warren did was bad, clearly. He's hateful and selfish and small and terrible. A bad person. Has he done anything, anything at all that has made anyone's life better? Not that we've seen. He has no redeeming qualities aside from his intelligence and his motivation, but he puts those positive qualities to the purpose of wreaking devastation. The only time we ever see him care about anything is in this episode, when he's out to save his own hide, and it's kind of gross. And the argument both for and against evil becomes clear when Xander, Dawn, and Buffy are talking in the living room, right after Buffy pulls Dawn out of the room where she's been sitting with Tara's dead body all day. He killed Tara, and he nearly killed you. He needs to pay. Out of the mouths of babes. Xander. I'm just saying, he's... He's just as bad as any vampire you sent to Dustville. Being a slayer doesn't give me a license to kill. Even as I agree intellectually with Buffy, and I know that she's right, emotionally, I'm with Dawn and Xander. It feels right that people shouldn't be allowed to get away with these things. They should pay. But the thing is, the bad guys aren't the only ones who pay the cost for vengeance. We spoke earlier in the season about the stain that vengeance leaves on the soul of the righteous. And the only thing vengeance can do now is take Willow's light away, too. And we see that in the way that Willow, from eyes to hair to wardrobe, is literally going dark. So is this justice worth the cost? No. Look, the whole reason why we have a Slayer is because there are some forces that human justice just can't deal with. But Warren? He's exactly the kind of thing the human justice system is made to deal with. The demon Willow summoned when she called for Osiris made the point. It's a human death, by human means, and the mystical has no business in that space. So there's no way this is going to end well, but maybe there's a point where everything's so messed up that ending well isn't even an option anymore. In which case, I guess from Willow's point of view, you just end it badly. Warren's going to find a way to get us out of here. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be busting us out any minute. He will. He's coming up with a plan. Like, war games. Remember that Dakota that Matthew Broderick used? Oh, yeah. That was rad. The one he made from the scissors in the tape recorder. I miss Ferris Matthew. Broadway Matthew, I find him cold. Really? No, I... Shut up. If you thought for a moment that Andrew and Jonathan were ever anything other than little boys playing at being men, as Katrina stated earlier in the season, their response to going to jail shows that even in her last moments, Katrina was no dummy. 
Even as they are in jail, even as the consequences of their actions are real and immediate, Andrew is still hiding himself within the warm fold of stories and narrative. We don't get much of Andrew and Jonathan in this episode. We've got bigger fish to flay. But what we get isn't just funny. It's acutely perceptive. Stories are powerful things. Their purpose isn't to pull us into delusion. It's to shine a light on the reality around us. But in our weaker moments, from time to time, we all fall under the allure of personal narrative. Both Andrew and Jonathan started out on this road to evil, playing out narratives they've read in comic books and seen in the movies without realizing that what they were doing was real with real consequence. Katrina's murder woke Jonathan up to reality, but Andrew has stayed firmly ensconced in fantasy, even up to the point where they've landed in a very real jail cell. I kind of love this. With so many thoughtful things happening in season six, with so many crunchy themes of vengeance and evil and the inoculative power of the soul floating around, it's easy to miss or dismiss what they're saying here about the delusional power of narrative to allow us to hide behind an attractive story when reality gets too ugly. I love the contrast between Jonathan and Andrew here, and I even love that the seductive siren's call of story can still draw Jonathan in, and he has to work to resist the pull. It's easy to use narrative to numb ourselves to the challenging realities of life. You think magic is addictive? Stories are the most powerful force on earth. They literally have the power of life and death. Wars are waged based on the story of the good guy and the bad. You are the result of a story your parents told each other. True love, the one night stand, the perfect sperm donor. And here you are, honey. Life and death. I'm not even kidding around here. So while there is so much incredibly powerful stuff happening in this episode, while we are engaged in this story that has us crying and shouting for vengeance, let's not forget that we are seeing ourselves reflected back as Jonathan and Andrew try to curl up under a story like a child's blankie, and as we indulge our fury at Marty Noxon for ruining Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I didn't want to leave her alone. Don, sweetheart, come on. We need to get out of here, okay? Dawn, sweetheart. Be strong for me, okay? Dawn, we need need to go downstairs. I don't understand. This episode is running at breakneck speed, and there's so much going on that it's easy to miss the wonderful moments we're getting from our main cast. We spoke of the allure of power earlier and sat with Buffy as she explained to Dawn and Xander why Warren needed human justice for a human crime. But let's take a moment to appreciate how much power Buffy has, how much she must want to use it in the face of the loss they've all just suffered, how Warren shot her and almost killed her, and yet she can still see clearly the responsibility her power saddles her with. She doesn't get to indulge in the righteousness. She has to be concerned with what's right. I do think, however, that we give Buffy a bit of short shrift in these episodes. Within 24 hours, she suffered a brutal sexual assault and being shot in the chest. That's real trauma, one right after the other. I can see her throwing herself into her work, hiding herself in the cloak of the Slayer to escape facing her trauma, but that doesn't mean the trauma's just gone. She's not fine. She can't be fine. Rape, gunshot, the death of a loved one, her best friend in serious danger of losing her soul. And let's not forget an entire season of dealing with being ripped out of her peaceful heavenly reward only to battle more demons and work at the Double Meat Palace. I get that we've got a lot of stuff going on here, but hot damn, we are completely sidelining Buffy's trauma. Look, I know Buffy's a superhero and everything, and maybe she's turning to the work to connect again with herself. I completely get that. But after everything she's been through, when she finds Dawn sitting in the room with Tara's dead body... 
How is this girl not in the fetal position around a bottle of wine in the TV remote right now? I had to run to the liquor store just from watching all of this. Damn. And then we get this moment when Dawn, not knowing about the recent sexual assault, asks to go and hang out with Spike. And I think maybe we see Buffy's brain short-circuiting a bit when she agrees. Xander's right on this one. I don't care about the stupid chip, so he can't hurt her physically. I think that's beyond the point. No powerful demon is coming after Dawn. We don't need Spike's superhuman strength to protect her. She just wants company. And Janice? Those right down the street. Remember Janice? Little high school girl? Maybe they'll sneak out again and run around town with boys, but that's not looking so bad to me right now. But all's well that ends with Bugles and Parcheesi. Sure I can't get you something? Uh, I've got Bugles and uh, Liverwurst. We're fine, thank you. Um, but you could do us a favor. Hmm? Do you think maybe Don could hang out here with you for a while? I have some stuff that I need to do, and, and uh, I really don't want her to be alone. I still don't see why I just Don. We've been through this. What do you think? No problem. I love the company. Do you like Parcheesi? I wish we could have gotten to Clem without making Buffy think it's okay to bring Dawn to stay with Spike, but at that moment, I am so grateful for the happiness Clem gives me that I'll admit, it's worth the whistling. We also get some fantastic Anya in this episode. She tries to stand up to Willow, and then when Xander comes to find out what happened, she drops the news that she's back in the vengeance game. And man, no more comedy mule bullshit for Emma Caulfield. Is there something you can do? A a locator spell? I don't need a spell. I can feel her. You can? Feel her. Her thirst for vengeance, it's overwhelming. Is that like leftover from your vengeance demon days? Just censor? No, not leftover. Oh. Yeah. And with that, we're off to the races, with Anya leading Buffy and Xander through the forest to find Willow. And I can't help but think about how we started this season in the forest at night where magic reigns supreme and cannot be reasoned with. But through this whole thing, there's one question that just keeps bugging me. Was Xander's car always purple? I'm still a warrior. You're a pathetic excuse for a demon. Yeah? I'll show you, pathetic. Give me a best shot. You'd never endure the trials required to grant your request. Do your worst. But when I win, I want what I came here for. What we get from Spike in this episode is brief, but powerful. He goes to Africa, and apparently that's what it takes to get some actors of color on Buffy, so... Okay... I know, the whole Spike thing is majorly problematic, and we're going to talk about that a lot, but this, wow, it's good stuff, and James Marsters is chewing the scenery here. I love everything about this scene. I love the way the demon shouts him down. I love the way they shoot Spike with his face in shadow. I love how dangerous he looks while still seeming tormented. I love how committed to his goal he is, even as I don't know, yet, specifically what that goal is. I'm not wondering how, in a day, a vampire managed to travel from Sunnydale to Africa because it's not like he could just hop a flight in the daytime, but thinking deeply about logistics has never really paid off for any Buffy fan. That's why they invented whistling, y'all. It's short, it's sweet, and it's damned good. That Noxon, 
She's no slouch. Fight or fight? Both. All of it. I, I still have a few tricks up my sleeve, but it, it's not enough. I need, I need a cover, and I need lots of firepower. I can't guarantee anything. Not this time. Girl is running on pure fury. I've never felt anything like it. Thank you for the tip, Nostradamus. Just load me up, okay? Warren's desperation in this episode is palpable, and it feels like oil just covering you in a thin slick of ew every minute. Because the thing is, people like this, they don't care about what they do to other people. The pain they cause, the damage they do, they don't care. But when it's them suffering, suddenly that's a thing. Now it matters. Now they care. I'm a person who tends to have a lot of empathy for people, even when they don't deserve it. That may sound like bragging, like it makes me, you know, such a good person, but trust me, I'm not bragging. It's not normal. Most people manage to be perfectly decent human beings without excessive empathy, and if anything, mine makes me a target for people without any empathy at all. It makes me feel everything around me, not entirely unlike Buffy in Earshot, and anyone who wants to take advantage of my empathy just has to tell me a sob story, and whether it's true or not, I'm at their side with wine and cookies. I'm an extrovert, but I need to shut myself up alone often because I need time where I don't have to feel the pain, anger, and damage of other people. I've got enough of my own. But even my empathy gets tested with Warren. When he goes into the demon bar crowing about killing the Slayer and the vampires mock him and tell him he's a dead man, the Slayer's gonna kill him, I kind of enjoy his fear. And when he goes to Rack and Rack says that he's got bigger problems than the Slayer, I like how freaked out he is. Good. He deserves it. He should be freaked out. In the forest, trussed up like a pig on a spit, this is when my empathy would ordinarily kick in. But he remains such an ass. He mocks Willow's pain. He calls the ghostly image of Katrina an it. And he's too much of a coward to make eye contact with Willow. I hate him here about as much as I've ever hated him. And yet, when Willow pulls his shirt open and floats the bullet in the air in front of his chest... My overactive empathy is the reason why I typically can't watch horror movies. I feel it deeply, every slash, every cut, every bit of fear. If I watch a horror movie, I'm in the fetal position for hours afterwards, so I only watch the really good ones, and then only when it's absolutely necessary, which would never be the case if I wasn't a story expert, but hey, worth it. That's the tax for this job? Paid. Bottom line, for me, horror is a challenge. So how did Buffy the Vampire Slayer become my favorite literary text in all the world? Because usually the horror element is just ridiculous enough not to trigger me. Nigerian death mask zombies and praying mantis bug teachers and glargical gashmanics. It's all CGI, latex, and makeup, and it kind of feels like it. Buffy excels at the metaphor and emotion, and for that, I am completely on board. But this? The horror of watching Willow chase down Warren. It's the most chilling thing in all of Buffy. This is tough to watch because it's about more than just some latex expressed metaphor for evil. Here evil is real, it's human, it's literally visceral. And so for an entire season when Warren's misogyny, his selfishness, his gross obsession with testicular manifestations of power has made me hate this guy probably more than I've ever hated any Buffy villain, watching him suffer like this, it didn't feel like justice to me. It wasn't satisfying. It was horrifying. I think at this point the show is coming down pretty clearly on the side that justice and vengeance are two different things, and that vengeance, however righteous it may seem when you think about it, is something entirely different when carried out. 
and it's the scariest thing for my money and all of Buffy. Oh my God, are you okay? Sure. How'd I get here? You gotta stop doing this. This dying thing's funny once, maybe twice. Willow? Buffy, hey. I don't know about you guys, but between seeing Red and villains, I'm exhausted. What Warren did was truly terrible. He's dangerous and society needs to be protected from people like that, no question. But I think there is a big question around the path that Willow's vengeance takes. Does Warren, after all he's destroyed, after killing Katrina and Tara and trying to kill Buffy, does he deserve to feel the bullet slowly move through his chest? Does he deserve to be flayed alive? Is it right that he should end this way? Righteous, maybe. But I'm not convinced that's the same thing. That'll do it for today. I'll be back next time with Season 6, Episode 21, Two to Go. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Chipperish.